as they go, I'll remind you that at the end of our service, those who are in Junior Church, they're going to come back and join us. Those who are um, adults and not members, you're welcome to start early on the coffee. The, um, our time together uh, in the members meeting is not going to be long as last time, and we will join you shortly uh, after for uh, fellowship time and choir. And uh, those who are children and your parents are in here as members, you're welcome to stay. It won't be, it won't be long. Death brings freedom. We all struggle to understand our relation to God after salvation. He graciously illustrates spiritual realities with concepts that we can understand. In Romans 6, if we were to explain Romans 6 in a concept that we could all understand, it would be we were once slaves of sin, and now we are slaves of God or slaves of righteousness. So the idea of slave and master. Who was our master before salvation? It was our slave, or it was our sin. Um, and of course, the law intensified that. We'll see that again in, in Romans 7. But as we are set free, we are now free to be slaves of God and obey God. That's what we see in Romans 6. Now, we have another illustration in Romans 7, continuing this idea of growing as a Christian, and this illustration comes from the law. It's helpful whenever you know the law, and if someone doesn't know the law, it's important to, to know the law, okay? And so, he's going to start with something that he expects his readers to understand. When I uh, share the gospel, one of the illustrations that I use to help someone understand that they, your good works don't outweigh your bad works is, do you understand the law that if I have done a lot of good things and I have, and I use the illustration of drugs in the trunk of my car, if I have illegal drugs in the trunk of my car and I get stopped and I tell the police officer as he finds the drugs, hey, you don't understand how many good things I've done, will my good get me out of going to the police station? Likely not. Nope, not going to happen. Why? And everyone understands the illustration because they know the law. Good works don't outweigh bad works in the law. All right, so now he's going to give an illustration of the law. Look at verse 1. Do you not know, brothers? So he's given something that they, they do know. And he's not writing to unsaved people, as some would say, because what, what word does he use in verse 1? He says, brothers. Unsaved people are never called brothers uh, in the New Testament. That is the most common word. I, I think it's one of the most common words for fellow Christians. Paul uses it many, many times, brethren. I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So he uses the word brothers, and he's talking to believers. Okay, so he's writing to believers in Romans 6, 7, and 8, how to grow as a Christian. And he says, I am speaking, don't you know, and he, they do know this, I'm speaking to those who know the law. And they would agree, yeah, we know the law. What law are you talking about, Paul? Okay, so he continues in verse 1, that the law is binding on a person as long as he lives. Right. So, if I were going to say this to you and... and we're in tax season right now. If you are alive, you have to pay taxes. And if you have earned income, you have to file taxes if you've earned so much, right? 
and most adults have to pay some sort of taxes this time of year. And my mom would say there's only two things that are certain in life, paying taxes and, and death, and you've probably heard that, but when you die, you're not concerned about paying taxes anymore. Now, they may take it from your estate, other ways to get your money after your death, but your responsibility to file income taxes is probably non-existent because you're dead. So, the law is binding on a person as long as he lives. Those who are alive have to obey the law, okay? So, the illustration starts with expected knowledge. What's the expected knowledge that Paul expects his readers to to have? The law is binding only on the living. And he starts with what they would obviously agree with him. Yeah, Paul, everybody knows that, he would say. Okay, so we're not going to spend a lot of time on verse 1 other than he gives something. He starts this illustration with something that everyone is expected to know and that they would obviously agree with him. Verse 2. Now he's going to say, talking about the law, binding on the person who is alive, He starts with verse 2, for a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives. Oh, right. Everyone would agree with that. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Okay? And everyone at the end of verse 2 would say, well, of course, Paul, you're telling us something that we already know and agree to. Okay? So, he gives some specific knowledge based on his, he expects them to know that the law is binding uh, only on the living. And then the specific knowledge he's going after is, and he's illustrating something that he's going to get to in verses 4 to 6, but he's getting to this, uh, he's illustrating first, and then he explain the illustration, the reality second. Normally, we give the reality first and ex- the illustration second, but he's doing it opposite here. Marriage law is only for the living, okay? Very specific knowledge, yes, building on the expected knowledge. Now, verse 3, accordingly... Based on what you know from verses 1 and 2, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. And everyone would say, yeah, that's how the law works, okay? And if her husband's alive, she is living with someone who's not her husband, like the woman at the well uh, that we know in John 4. Uh, She would have been called by her culture, by the law of her land, she would have been called an adulteress, yes, because she was living with another man who she was not married to, and her husband, uh, in her case, husbands, were still alive. But, verse 3 continues, if her husband dies, she's freed from that law, the law that bound her to her husband, because her husband was alive, she's bound to him. If he dies, she's free. And if she marries another man after her husband is dead, she's not an adulteress. And no one would want this label of adulteress, and everyone would say, yes, but if she remarries after her husband dies, no one's calling her an adulteress. Okay, does this make sense? This is uh, the explanation here. The application is, this woman is guilty. She's a guilty spouse. She's only guilty if possible, if her uh, spouse is alive. So, if her husband is dead, she's not guilty, breaking God's law. Breaking God's law, um, number seven, right, of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery. And cultures have this, okay? If you have a law of marriage, you have a law of, uh, expected law of adultery, okay? So, imagine 
the longer you live, the more likely it is that you and I know someone who is in an unhappy or even an unsafe marriage. So, if you're in an awful marriage, the death of your spouse is, in some ways, a relief. And no one is still married to someone who has passed. It's impossible to be married to someone who has passed. If your spouse has passed, you are then free from your covenant with him or her. This is obvious, okay? So, I'm not going to explain that other than Paul uses this to illustrate the spiritual reality that he's going to give in verses 4 to 6. How do we know it's connected to the illustration of 1 to 3? Look at verse 4, how it starts. It says, likewise, okay? There are other words that connect, like therefore or so that, uh, but here he uses the word likewise to connect this, uh, another way of illustrating that we are free from the law, we are free to um, serve our Savior Jesus Christ. Verse 4, likewise, my brothers. So, if we miss brothers in verse 1, it's clearly talking to Christians in verse 4 because he says, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. So, all Christians, brothers, have died to the law through Christ's death. Now, I'm going to have on the right side of the screen some cross-references so we don't have to look those up, and it'll speed up our looking back. But Romans 6, verses 3 and 4 says, we were baptized into His death. That means we were immersed into His death. Nothing to do with water in Romans 6. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So, he's talking about our new life is in Christ, and we're not just uh, immersed into His uh, death. We're also immersed into His resurrection and His life. But the connection that we have because of Christ's death, and we just remembered Christ's death. As we remember Christ's death, that is our identity. We have all died with Christ. What does that mean? Well, Romans 6.14 says, for sin will have no dominion over you. Sin will not have dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. If you were in a very demanding, awful marriage and your spouse dies, you have zero obligation to obey your spouse. If you're a wife, you have zero obligation to submit to um, your husband any longer because he's dead. Does that make sense? Well, yeah. So, if you're the husband and your wife dies and your life was, I have to love my wife because Christ loved the church, yes, but if your wife dies, you don't have to love her anymore. You say, oh, okay, I'm, I'm talking about the illustration, okay? That's what, but he's going to refer to it as we were once married to sin. See how before in Romans 6, we were enslaved to sin, and that slave language, we, our slave was our master, our sin was our master, we had to obey sin, we had to give our bodies to sin. That was Romans 6. Now, Romans 7, he's saying, imagine a marriage, and uh, it's when your, your spouse dies, you're free uh, to remarry, and that's the picture here in verse 4. You also have died to the law through the body of Christ. We are 
immersed into the body of Christ at the moment of our salvation. That's Romans 6, 3, and 4. And because we are immersed, we have died with Christ, we have died to a spouse. All Christians have died to the law through Christ's death. All right? So, explanation. So now, we belong to Christ. You cannot be married legally to two people. You only be married to one. Now, the law may change, but God's Word doesn't change. You say, well, what about the people in the Old Testament? It was never God's will, never God's plan for um, Jacob to marry sisters and their slaves. It was never God's will for Hannah's husband, Elkanah, to have two wives. Every time we see polygamy in the Old Testament, it shows the horrors of it. It's not functional uh, marriage as it's supposed to be. It is dysfunctional, okay? And cultures may allow it, but Christianity cannot. You look at the expectations of leaders in the in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 3, a man is to be the husband of one wife, okay? Clearly, even if you're in a culture that allows polygamy, God does not in His church, okay? And when we are thinking of our relationship to Christ, we were once married to the law and sin, but because we are immersed into Christ's death, which we just remembered, we belong to to God. We belong to Christ. We are married to Christ. Is that how the New Testament pictures us? Are we not the part of the bride of Christ? We are. We're looking forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb in in Revelation 19. So, it's almost like we're in a betrothal time. And even now, if you have, ladies, have a ring on your finger and you're engaged to someone, you're not open to dating. You shouldn't be. (laughs) <laughs> and if you are, we're going to say, uh, you shouldn't be dating other people. Like you have, you said yes to this guy and you're going, just waiting for the wedding to happen and be faithful to your future husband. And it's just a matter of time before you have the wedding ceremony. Uh, we're waiting for the marriage of a lamb. Christ has purchased our freedom. He has also betrothed us. God the Father has betrothed us to the Son. And we are free from, the, we have died to the law. Okay, look at verse 4. So that, end of verse 4, you may belong to another. Remember, you can't belong to two, two men or you can't belong to two women. You'll be an adulteress. But if your spouse passes, then you're free to, to remarry. So that you can belong to another. To him who has been raised from the dead. That has to be Christ. He doesn't have to say Christ because he mentions Christ early in verse 4. He just explains it that you would, be, you would belong to Jesus Christ who has been raised from the dead. In order that, so we are married, we belong to Christ so that we may bear fruit for God. A marriage, when people are married, they expect them to have, they're not wrong, to have children, to bear fruit, offspring. When we're married to Christ, we bear fruit. We bear fruit to whom? To God. We see the idea of fruit back in chapter 6. 
so we will bear fruit to God. What does this fruit look like? This fruit looks like Jesus. Whenever you have a legitimate mom, a legitimate dad, and the baby's born, and people say, you look just like, or you have your father's nose, or your mom's smile. Why? Because you look like your parents. And whenever we are bearing fruit to God, the fruit looks like Jesus. Our lives will look like and should look like Jesus. When we walk in the Spirit, Galatians 5 says, we will have the fruit of the Spirit, pleasing God. You know what pleases God? When we look like Jesus. You know what Jesus looks like? He looks like perfect love, perfect joy, perfect peace, perfect gentleness, perfect kindness, perfect faithfulness, perfect self-control. And none of us are perfect, but after salvation, we should start looking like that as we submit to the Holy Spirit. We'll see the Holy Spirit mentioned in verse 6. We've got to keep moving. The spiritual reality of Romans 7, 5. Let's look at verse 5. For while we were living in our flesh... Now, who are we married to if we're living in the flesh? We're married to our sin, our sinful passions, aroused by the law. In any relationship, there is an attraction. That's the arousal, the attraction. It's natural for a, a husband and a wife to be attracted to each other. We expect that. We rejoice in that. We encourage that. But using the illustration of marriage here in this covenant of marriage, while we were living in the flesh, married to the flesh, our sinful passions, what we wanted was wrong. It was sin. Aroused by the law. If we want a boyfriend or girlfriend in high school, and we don't want our parents telling us what to do, we are going to be aroused by, hey, you can't text her or him. Oh, yeah? I really like him or her. I'm just going to have to be more secretive about it. And the laws that your parents may give you if they don't want you to date someone are aroused. Every time you hear the law, you're like, how can I get around it? How can I get away with it? How can I keep people that know quiet? How can I hide this sinful passion? When we were living in the flesh, operating in the flesh, not the Spirit, the law agrees with our heart, or actually arouses our heart, inflames our sinful passions, and it tells our bodies to go after sin, to, to get sin. This is how David sinned with Bathsheba. He knew the law, he was operating in the flesh, but he was dead to this. He should have been married to, to God in his heart, and he forgot that. And his sinful passions were aroused by the law, and it caused him to call Bathsheba and sin with her, and then try to cover that sin. And we have his story that shows us the end of that sin, what resulted in death, death of the child, death of Uriah, death of, I think, 36 others at that battle. When sin is given into, the result is death. For while we were living in our flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law, 
We're at work in our members to bear fruit. And it's not bearing fruit. If you go at the end of verse 4, bearing fruit to God, no, we're bearing fruit for death. So all Christians should know how our marriage to our sin worked. What caused us in our marriage to our sin, what caused that relationship to be awful? Well, verse 5 says, when we belong to our sin, the law provoked more sin. Is that what Romans 6 says as well? Yes, lawlessness produced more lawlessness and produced more law. The more you hear the law and you're living in the flesh, the more you want to break the law. Why do you want to break the law? Because you are serving, you're married to your sinful passions. And when we, before we are saved, every single person before Christ is married to their sin. That's the illustration here. We belonged to our sin. We were married to it. We had to obey it, Romans 6 would say as well, because we are slaves to it. Now we're married to it. And the law provoked us, aroused our passions, even commit more and more and more sin. This is what our marriage to sin look like. And every single person on the face of the earth before Christ, their lives look like this. This is why they sin and they don't want to sin, but they have to sin. They keep giving into it because they're married to sin. And you give them laws and they struggle because they're married to sin. And so that we bore fruit to death. We're quickly running out of time, so I'm going to skip verse 6 and go to the application. What is our primary motivation to obey God? I'm going to leave you with this, and we'll pick up here, um, pick up here later. Romans six seventeen says this, but thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. We are told, I'm going to just going to read verse 6, and then we'll, we'll apply it, and we'll get the explanation of verse 6 uh, in a future message. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. There's so much in verse 6, I can't go quickly through it. What keeps people, what keeps Christians obeying God from the heart, which is Romans 6, 17? What is your primary motivation to obey God? Ask yourself, you get up in the morning and you want to sin, but you don't sin as a Christian. Why? What's keeping you, what's keeping me from disobeying God? There's two primary motivations here. And uh, verse 6 talks about the new way of the Spirit instead of the old way. I'm going I'm to just throw this up here. I'll let you think about it. And when we uh, preach through verse 6, hopefully it'll, it'll come together. Is it rules? Do rules, pri are your primary motivation to obey God is, I, I have this rule. I know I shouldn't lie. Okay, so knowing the Ten Commandments keeps me from obeying from disobeying, okay? Keeps me obeying. All other religions have a list of rules. Why do people take pilgrimage? Why do they pray so many times a day? Why do they crawl upstairs on their knees praying? Why do they light candles? Why do they, and fill in the blank, Christianity is not like other religions, 
if I wanted to help my kids as they get older to be motivated to obey God, I'm not going to keep giving them more rules. But we try that. What our country needs is not better politicians to give us better rules. People are still going to illegally have abortions, even if abortion was illegal. Why? Because the heart is wrong. I want to cover my sin. My sinful passions are going to be aroused by laws. Rules are not it. Now, is it wrong to obey rules? Absolutely not, but there's a better way. And Galatians hints at this with Galatians 5. After the fruit of the Spirit, at the end, I believe, of verse 23, same verse where the the fruits of the Spirit end, and it says, against such there is no law. If we have a dynamic relationship with our spouse, the Lord Jesus Christ, we will not be concerned about lying because He hates lying. We will not be concerned about committing adultery because He is faithful. We will not be concerned about dishonoring our parents because it totally goes against what our Savior loves. We will not be concerned even about coveting, which will be mentioned in Romans 7, because our God supplies all of our needs. We can be content. I heard this dichotomy here, rules versus relationship, when I was a youth pastor and this school administrator that I highly admired spoke in chapel, is it rules or is it relationship? And when he said that, I'm like, light bulb, whoa, this is a game changer. You cannot give people enough rules to help them be godly. Because where does ungodliness come from? Our sinful passions in our hearts that are aroused by laws. But as Christians, we do not have to follow our heart at all. We are free from our sinful passions. We are free to merely obey our loving Father, and our loving Savior. I can't develop it, but you can look back through Romans up to this point and really see, is it rules or is it relationship that our God is going after? And it's not rules. It's a relationship. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself are based on They're overarching rules, yes, but they are based on a relationship that you have with the Lord your God and a relationship that you have with your neighbor. This is our primary motivation. Every time we wake up, every time we're tempted to sin, your love for God, your love for neighbors is tested. If you love God or you love yourself, it's revealed by what comes after the temptation. Are you going to give in to it? Are you going to say no to it? Because Christ says you have to deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow me. 
follow me is not rules, primarily. It's a relationship that we have with our Master, with our Savior, with our spouse who loved us and gave Himself for us. We cannot remember His death and think, I just got to obey His rules. Oh, I hate these rules. It's not about rules. The primary motivation for all of us has to be, and this is spiritual maturity, whenever we don't, we're so concerned about rules, but we look past the rules to the relationship and say, oh, I know why my wife doesn't want me to bring a puppy home, because she's allergic to dogs. There's a lot of things I do in life because my wife's allergic. Is it her fault that she's allergic? No. But my relationship with her determines a lot of rules that I put in place because I have this relationship. And this is how relationships work. And this is how God wants us to be motivated. You can look at the 600 rules in the Old Testament or the 800 rules in the New Testament, and you'll be frustrated forever trying to obey all of those rules. Or you can say, all right, I have to love the Lord my God. And when you're loving the Lord your God and you're walking in the Spirit, you're not going to be breaking God's law. That's what Galatians 5 says, and that's the idea here in Romans 7. What, whatever governs your heart each day is going to determine whether you're obeying God or you are disobeying Him. Let's pray. Our Father, thank You for Your truth. Pray You give us the grace we need now to obey it as we are faced uh, with a difficult vote in just a few minutes. Give us the grace we need and the relationship that we need with You to do what is right and help uh, us to train our conscience to be in love with You and to follow Your Word and to trust in the Lord our God with all of our heart and help us not to lean on our own understanding. In all our ways, help us to acknowledge You and You promise to direct our paths. Direct our paths today, Lord, as Your church, to follow our Savior. No matter what we feel, help us to, to follow Your Word. Help us to be, to be convinced that Your Word is true and righteous, it's, and there's nothing wrong with it. Help us to claim... Matthew 18, that says, where two or three are gathered together in my name to exercise church discipline, there you, our Savior Jesus Christ, you're in our midst. We are doing your work. Help us to follow you. Help us to please you. And we'll leave the results up to you. We trust you. We will keep growing in our trust toward you as we keep listening to the Spirit and not our flesh. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.